this is an exciting new voice. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. Today, we're taking some time to talk about writing and finishing a debut novel. What it takes to get it done, what advice actually works, and what authors wish they knew when they started to write. This week, I spoke with three debut novelists about turning a work in progress into a completed manuscript. Um, Hi, I'm Emily Spur, and uh, I am the author of a debut novel called A Million Things. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Bublitz, and my debut novel, Before You Knew My Name, is out on May 4th this year. Hi, my name's Kavitha Bedford, and my debut novel is Friends and Dark Shapes. There are a lot of unfinished manuscripts out there. Many of you who are listening may even have a work in progress that you're plugging away on. So what does it take to turn a work in progress into a completed manuscript ready to send out to agents and publishers? Emily Spur. Time. (laughs) Lots and lots of time. Um, And a fair amount of... uh, Stubbornness, I would suggest as well. Um, I worked for a very long time um, on this novel, um, and the the largest problem I had was probably um, dealing with the, the little voice that that asks you, you know, why are you doing this? Who's going to read it? Um, and doing it anyway. Um, so yeah, my, my two big things would be finding the time to do it. And that might be, you know, um, certainly when I started writing, my children were much younger and, and I wrote during that time. So it would be you know, half an hour here and there, um, getting up early, uh, going to bed late, all of those things. Um, and the other one is just um, pushing yourself to do it, even when it feels like a uh, pointless task. Jacqueline Bublitz. Yeah, so this is a really um, relevant question for me right now because I'm coming to the end of my second draft of my second book. Um, and I've actually missed my deadline, so I'm uniquely qualified and maybe should be disqualified from answering questions at the same time. Um, but I think the key with a work in progress is to remember that your earliest draft, that for you, the writer, um, that first draft in particular doesn't doesn't even really have to make sense to a reader. It's about getting to know your characters and your themes and figuring out what you want your characters to say, which will probably change a thousand times along the way. So I would say, from my experience at least, it takes patience and, and time and focus, and definitely you need to back yourself along the way so that you know, if you know that your story has good bones, you just need to keep working at it. And even when you think it's done, chances are you've still got five or six drafts ahead of you still, but every single one makes the book better. And the work that you do is how you get it. Kavita Bedford. It's such a long process. Um, I actually had a draft of this novel which took me about three years to write and I very much thought it was ready. But I realised in my gut that so much of it was that I really wanted it to be ready as opposed to it actually was. And I um, am very lucky in that I talked with a few fellow writers who were kind of working along the same lines and I sent it to a couple of trusted friends 
um, to read it. And the feedback I got was, it's not quite there yet. And I remember that was a really hard thing to hear. Um, and I actually sat with it because I think so much of writing is you're writing the book, but you're also navigating such a process within yourself as well around coming to terms with doubt, coming to terms with being seen, coming to terms with perfectionism. Um, so it took a little while to also kind of, you know, work into those ideas. And I realized that if I was going to write this book, I needed to rewrite the whole thing. Um, and it took some time, but that's what I decided to do. And once I found the flow and the voice that is the current book, that is Friends in Dark Shape, it just came together in a much cleaner process for me. At what stage did you decide to rewrite the whole thing? How far into the process were you? After three years, I'd already written one draft. And, well, I mean, it'd been several drafts, but I had a version of the book. And I think part of it was also recognising, and this is why they say, you know, it's really important to let things breathe and to actually give it some space and walk away from what you're writing for periods of time. Because when I looked back on what I'd written there, that's not the novel or the voice or the message that I wanted to be putting out into the world. And actually having that space to breathe and work out once again what the central point of this novel was made it come to get together in a way that galvanized me and, and it gave it sense as well. And although it was really hard, I mean, there were a lot of tears. Um, it was also a process that started to make a lot more sense when I worked out the sort of kernel of what I or the message that I really wanted to be conveying. When you were sharing the book with trusted readers, or the draft, I should say, uh, were they begging for it or were you begging for them to read it or was it halfway in between? Um, I was part of a really beautiful program that I did overseas many years ago called Under the Volcano. And there I met some young women actually who were all kind of at similar stages of writing to me. And I hadn't had that before. And they were from all around the world. And we kept in touch over, I mean, now it's been seven years. Um, and we kept sharing our work with each other as well as getting mentors to look at it. But so much of it was actually having this kind of collective of young women who were trying to navigate own writing journeys, but also own questioning of the world. And, and again, that question of what we wanted to be putting out. Um, so for me, I think there was this really beautiful synergy where we were both, sh we were sharing each other's work. Um, so it felt quite mutual and there was a reciprocity to it, which I think is so important where you need to be reading as much as you're, you know, writing. Um, and so that was a really useful process. But then when I got to the final draft of this version, I actually sent it out to non-writers and I love readers and I wanted people who have nothing to do with the craft of it to actually, also, but who loved literature to be giving me feedback. So I chose about six friends um, from different demographics and for very different reasons. And I asked them as a favor um, to read my work and give me feedback um, from that perspective of what does it feel like to wake up on a Saturday and just open this book and read it. Did you get some very disparate responses or, or were you uh, surprised in the kind of unity? Yeah, by that stage, it was wonderful. I mean, I'd gone by that point, I'd done so many re-edits of it myself. And, you know, I'd polished it up to a 
state that I was quite happy with. Um, and one of the things that was really fantastic for me was to send it to men and women and to hear what they felt and to, to feel that it was actually a novel for everyone. Um, that was a sort of really wonderful thing. And also to get different age perspectives on it. I mean, what I've noticed with this novel is definitely dependent on ages or not even age, but just perhaps where you're placed in life, different things come out. So I've noticed a lot for younger people, it's very much about the share house dynamics and navigating, you know, Sydney or nightlife or issues of, you know, online dating um, or that kind of impermanency of contract work and what it feels like, you know, where we've kind of done away with unions. Um, and so much of the work is also about class and about these social structures. So I found that really seemed to have a wide appeal to a lot of the sort of younger demographic. Um, but then what was also interesting was it's not age specific, but people who have lost um, really connected with the grief part. And I think also getting those sorts of um, feedback around what, what elements around grief and loss people were at. I've been receiving a lot of really beautiful messages. Um, and then for some people, it was depending on where they're at in living in a city, either they've moved out or they're still living in one. Some people were saying it suddenly made them want to live in Sydney um, and others were saying it made them want to leave Sydney. <laughs> If you've been on a scroll through Bookstagram lately, I'm sure you've seen a lot of advice, writing tips, writing programs, courses, getaways, books, teaching you how to write a book. It's easy to get lost in a sea of advice, but what advice should you actually follow? What actually works? Jacqueline Bubbitts again. So I saw a piece of advice in an article in The Guardian the other day, and it was about how you know, the first sentence of a book should rip the reader's heart out and destroy your soul and, and all of, of such things. And uh, I might have taken that kind of thing seriously before going through this experience, uh, but now you, you look at that and think, well, the first sentence of the novel just needs to start the book. <laughs> you know, it needs to make sense. It needs to be good that you're not right. If you set out to rip somebody's heart out from the very first sentence, you are... Uh, got a long road ahead of me um, as a writer. You have to let your first draft be shitty. And I'm not allowed, I don't know if I can say shitty right now. So she, that's what she calls it. You so she says, you know, it, you need to have a shitty first draft before you can go any further. So I think that, that ties into my prior answer about how do you turn a, a work of progress into, into something you're ready to share. Um, but why it was important to me um, to let my first stuff be bad was because when I first started writing, there would be this disconnect between the quality that was in my head and then what I could actually get down onto the page. And I would get really frustrated and give up because I felt like I was wasting my time if I wasn't writing you know, the perfect paragraph every time I sat down. And so Anne Lamott taught me, and obviously lots of people, it wasn't a personal lesson, um, that you need to leave behind the idea of perfection and just get your story out and you'll have plenty of time to refine your sentences and the beats of the story and um, for a lot of people I think you know, you'll have a lot of time to meet your very own like high standards about what you expect the book to be so you know if I had to sum that up and like, let it be bad at the start let your book be nonsense and write rubbish um, because not even your favourite book 
came out perfectly formed. Um, and what you don't want to do is be so busy editing yourself off the page that there's nothing left at the end of the day. Is that a struggle, the, um, the inclination to edit? That, that's certainly... Oh, my a, goodness, yes. Yeah, even if I try and write an email, I, I find <laughs> self-editing <laughs> yeah, and, is, and, it could, could, can take up a lot of the uh, emailing time. And it's not. that's a really good point because you're not just writing a book and there's nothing else going on in your life. And so we sort of live um, you know, in an age of communication where, and especially if you have a, a so-called day job, you need to get your point across quickly. You need to, be, um, you need to get it right. You can't, yeah you know, dwell on the, the perfect message to your boss you know, of an afternoon. So that getting into that creative space where you do like actually what might feel like waste time is quite you know, antithetical to how you're probably operating in the rest of your life. Um, it is difficult. And for a debut writer who is also working on their second book, um, well, you know, while doing the line edits and copy edits for, for the first book and they're really preparing that first book for publication, it's, it's really two different parts of your, of your brain. And I myself have struggled with going back to the beginning with the second book when I've been you know, agonizing over does this word have the right amount of syllables in it to, you know, to be the right word to finish off with paragraph you know, in book one. So, yeah, eternal struggle, and I doubt that it will um, get better. But Good to know. <laughs> eternal <laughs> struggle, I like, I like that. <laughs> Traumatic much, but yes, yeah. Kavita Bedford. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and I think the reason it has such a variety of answers is because, you know, we're made up of such different sensibilities and what works for one person might not for another. So I think it's this kind of cookie-cutter mentality obviously never really um, resonates across. For me personally, I am denied a very long time about whether to actually enlist in formal kind of writing courses like an MFA or, um, you know, a program. And in the end, partly also out of economic reasons, I couldn't. And... I also, out of uh, my own sensibility, realized that that wasn't quite the way that I wanted to learn. Um, and for me, so much of it has been, and the hard thing is about for anyone, and it depends whether you, doesn't matter, sorry, rather, if you're doing an MFA or if you're doing it on your own, it's all about routine. And it's all about this kind of daily practice. And I think at the end of the day, it's some people need, other people around them to be enforcing that and to actually give that discipline, which is absolutely fine. And other people want to self-create that discipline. Um, so I think a lot of those, and you know, you get such huge amounts out of having mentors and people read your work and actually being given feedback. Um, and because it's a lonely journey, you need, you need peers of some kind. So whatever is going to get you those key elements, peers, feedback and routine, I don't think then it matters what way you go about doing it. Um, you mentioned something about recognizing your own sensibility and how that wouldn't perhaps play to an MFA program. Can you elaborate on that a bit? What, what was it about yourself that you were recognizing? So for me, I think um, 
I can be quite persuadable in many ways. And especially at the stage I was writing, sort of in my late 20s as a young woman, uh, where, you know, there's so many different forms of doubt, structural as well as social, as well as conditioning. And the levels of doubt that already I felt, um, for me, I knew would not tolerate that kind of way of learning. Um, I felt that if I was kind of amongst peers and things were constantly being dissected before I'd even had room to flex what it was that I wanted to say, um, that that wasn't the approach that would best suit my sensibility. That's not to say that you don't undergo incredibly rigorous uh, examination of the work and put it out there, and that's a whole part that is incredibly important to actually have readers, editors, people deconstruct it. Um, so it's not saying being too fragile for that, but to be in a kind of room with a small cohort of people where it felt perhaps for me that it could go into a kind of competitive or that my own voice might get sort of persuaded in another way. Again, not saying there's anything wrong with going down that path, but for me it felt like I needed time to understand really how I wanted my own voice to sound. Emily Spurt, what advice is actually worthwhile in, in your perspective and, and what, what advice did you put aside? That is a great question. Um, I think you have to take these things with a large grain of salt. Um, perhaps a lot of that advice comes from people where, where that has worked really, really well, but I don't think that it is a one-size-fits-all solution. Um, writing a book is not necessarily the same as building a car. Um, there isn't necessarily a, a blueprint to follow. Um, I suppose what I do is um, I take what I need and I leave the rest. Um, so I don't, you know, there's this idea that there's those that plan and those that fly by the seat of their pants. And um, I don't think I fit in either of those camps. I think I'm a bit of both. I have a very loose idea of where I'm going, but it's a bit of a magical road trip and I'm never quite sure how I'm going to get to the end. <laughs> um, so, you know, for sure, um, if, if it helps you in your confidence um, and it helps you to get down and sit at the desk and do it, then, you know, look, look for those um, bits of advice, um, but don't take it as gospel. Um, I think if you assume that someone else knows more about how you write, you're doing yourself a disservice. Um, there are always people that know more than, than you. There are certainly a lot of people that know more than I do. Um, but you do have to have a certain amount of, of trust that that you know what it is that you're doing. And if you don't know that, you know, you'll figure it out through uh, trial and error. Um, and that's it. You know, allow yourself to write for three days um, and then in a month's time realise that it all needs to be deleted. <laughs> part of the process. Was motivation a big issue for you? And if so, uh, what did you do to motivate yourself? Um, yes and no. Um, I think uh, this is something I've always wanted to do. So there's a, a huge, a huge amount of motivation there. Um, also, um, you know, this is something that's taken time 
away from my family and time away from my kids. And um, <clears throat> when they uh, went to school, I, I didn't go back to work full time, full time. I had, you know, a day to write. Um, and that's a huge financial sacrifice for our family to give me that day. And um, to then squander that or not use it properly or, um, you know, to be given that with no, you know, there was no strings attached. It wasn't given begrudgingly. It was very generously decided as a family that that, that was what, you know, our family needed was for me to be able to have the space to try this um, and, and a very privileged position to be able to do that. Um, but then to, it was always this pressure I then put on myself that I've had this trust placed in me, so I better bloody do it. Um, so I think the fear of um, getting to the end of that and having nothing to show for it was probably um, greater than my deep ingrained tendency to procrastinate. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty, as they say. So what lessons learned through the writing process would have been valuable to know at the start? Would our authors have approached their debut novel differently, knowing what they know now? I asked the question to Kavita Bedford. To be kinder, I think it's such a discipline, you know, it's sort of almost similar in some ways to a kind of meditation process where you turn up each day and some days you're completely scattered and all over the place and you can't find a stillness or a right moment for that voice to come through and other days it's like crystal. But to judge each time and to self-flagellate and to go through all of those things, which I know are also just part of it, but to actually recognise that we've kind of got to work from an abundance model and it is important to honour and to actually sort of self-congratulate and to find the space in this craft if it's what you really want to be doing with your life to also enjoy the small moments and to take notice and observe because that's really what we're doing in, in writing. We're kind of offering up a slice of life to other people and to ourselves. And it's important, I think, within that to, yeah, be, be in the stillness, be in the moments and honour what comes up and not go down a path of too much self-criticism. Just the right amount, huh? Just the right amount. You need an amount there. Jacqueline Bublitz, what, what would you wish that you'd be able to tell yourself, if anything, at the outset of the whole project? <laughs> so many things. Um, but one that comes to mind in terms of um, the writing process and, and being able to get to this point is that I wish that I'd understood earlier that there is no perfect, and in air quotes here, no perfect time to write. You know, you don't have to wait for the muses to come or to be alone for a whole week or, I don't know, like the moon to be in your seventh house or something. It's, um, um, so, yeah, I just wish that I had understood earlier that writing is not outside of my life. It's part of my life and it's going to um, be difficult at times um, but important to just carve out some space in the day but it doesn't have to be the whole day um, so that is you know, my biggest lesson because it means that I would have 
probably finished before you knew my name quite a lot earlier because I took six years on that one and I've been able to turn around two drafts of my second book in less than 12 months. So there's something in that. (laughs) Yeah, well, well, you know, maybe a pandemic helps if we can say, I don't want to say, you know, anything positive about a pandemic, but maybe it helps that you can't leave your house for a certain amount of time as well. Um, but that came with its own distractions, as I'm sure um, you're all aware. So on the other side of a, a six-year project, um, yeah. do, do those 20-minute grabs of time where you jot down notes and and just um, reflect on things or, or even just read over something you've written or thought about, um, do they do they add up? Do they do they yes. make a, a dent in the end? They do, and I and I think it's not it's not just the words on the page. It's just, you know it's important to do that, and I would encourage people to you know set little goals for themselves. Um, but it's because when you take that little bit of time, something starts you know marinating is usually the word I use in your head, um, and you find when you are doing something else that your characters will you know, start having lives of their own because you've, you've given them some a little bit of space to play, which makes me sound a bit creepy, but I think you know what I mean. Um, so, yeah, it's not just that 20 minutes isn't just about what you get down on the page because it's not probably going to be, um, you know, high high quality when you're just taking time, but it's making space for those characters or those themes um, to sort of take on a life of their own. Emily Spur. If you were to you know, give yourself any advice um, at the outset of trying to do this, um, uh, what what do you wish you know would know then that you know now? Wow! Um, <laughs> just I don't know. I, I feel like I mean I got here, so I was obviously doing something all right. Um, maybe don't be so harsh on the days where you do, um, you know, I was just talking about the, the pressure that you, you put on yourself and the pressure I put on myself because my family had made space for me to do this and I felt that I needed to deliver something. Um, that said, um, procrastination in and of itself is not a bad thing. Um, giving yourself the space to let your subconscious do its thing um, staring out the window, um, realising that you've, you know, just wasted half a day playing around with a sentence. Um, All of those things are valuable. Um, And, and why, you know, don't, don't give yourself a a pass ticket not to work hard, but accept that um, the gentler times and the down times and the thinking times are just as much as part of the process as, um, you know, churning out a massive word count. Um, and the days where maybe you sat down and did 500 words um, in the grand scheme of things can be the most pivotal days. Um, so that would probably be, you know, just um, be a bit more gentle with yourself. <laughs> That's excellent. I, I love that. And it's, it's actually the same advice I give to people who ask me how they can read more books. Tell them you know, this, the days when you only read a, a chapter, um, but it it changes you or 
you you go away and think about what you've read. That's that's just as valuable. It's it's um, yeah, it's that's a, a really parallel. interesting comparison. Yeah, I like that. I hadn't thought of it. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. You know, sometimes um, words and ideas need space around them, and um, giving them that that space is not failing to achieve something. It's um it's actually helping in the long run. Um, and 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 I mean it's. <laughs> A lot of people complain about writing, um, myself included, because some days it makes you want to pull your hair out. Um, but it's also reading and writing is something you do because you love it. Um, and to love it, it needs, you know, it needs space for that love to grow. And, and sometimes that's just taking it gently. You can find A Million Things by Emily Spur, Before You Knew My Name by Jacqueline Bublitz and Friends and Dark Shapes by Kavita Bedford all on booktopia.com.au right now, available for your reading pleasure. And join us next time when we talk to three other debut authors and what they did next once the manuscripts are finished and delivered. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au